Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. Now, one of my favorite things about doing autism stories is continuing to learn from other autistic people because there's so much about autism that I still don't know. That's why when I heard that Jody O'Neill wrote a play titled What I Don't Know About Autism, I knew that I had to talk to her. So Jody was kind enough to uh, join me today to discuss her play, how the theater can be more inclusive, and what she wants to continue to learn about autism. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Jody, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start off by learning where does your story in the autistic community begin? Okay, so I guess my story in the autistic community has probably technically been all my life, but that I knew of it, the first I knew of it was back in 2016, uh, when my son, who was then four, was diagnosed as autistic. And when he was diagnosed, we were recommended to get him into all kinds of, you know, behavioral therapies. And uh, we started to do a little bit of our own research around whether these therapies would be good or useful for him. Um, and through that, I began to read a lot of, uh, I began to connect with the autistic community and to read a lot of autobiographies and memoirs by people who were autistic and began to recognize, oh, hang on, this journey has been going on for much longer than I realized. And I, because I so strongly identified with the stories and the experiences um, that I was hearing and, and reading about. And so then I was diagnosed as autistic three years later in 2019. So technically three years, but it's amazing the retrofitting that happens, I suppose, <laughs> after an adult diagnosis where you go back and back and back and you're looking at, you know, distant relatives that you go, oh, it explains so much. Now, you wrote a play, What I Don't Know About Autism, that I've read many wonderful reviews about. Now... Since you're not just a writer, but you're also a trained actor, I was curious about what you look for in actors in bringing your words to life in this play. In this particular play, we went through a really specific process with it in that I was very, I set out to write it for two reasons. I wanted to celebrate autistic identity and to promote autism acceptance. And so for me, from the outset, it was going to be really important that we had the right people more than the right actors, if you know what I mean. So it was less about, okay, who can play the emotional spectrum of this role and more about actually who's going to be the right person to have in the room with us and to go through this very specific process that involves a little bit of co-creation and also some back and forth about the script and development of choreography. And then, crucially, also some audience interaction and conversation. And we I was really lucky, actually. It was a funny casting process, but 
one of the first people I met in connection with this play was an actress called Eleanor Walsh. And Eleanor had written her thesis in DCU on relaxed performance. And so I met her for tea to discuss how to go about making relaxed performance, her experience of making relaxed performance and of writing her thesis. And by the end of it, I was like, okay, I don't know if she can act. I don't know what she can do, but I want her to be part of this process. And so I was able to offer her a part just based on that. And and, and because we had two full weeks of development prior to ever starting rehearsals, we had this opportunity for people to try us out and for us to see, okay, are they the right fit for this production? So a lot of people came on board kind of in a in quite a, a random way where we just we just instinctively felt this is this person is gonna have a lot to contribute to the room and to this production and that it will also be a nourishing experience for them to be part of it. What what the actors ultimately did was that, you know, they, they acted, they they played multiple roles, everybody, they sang, they danced, and they kind of switched between direct address to the audience and very being kind of very much in fourth wall drama scenes so they were incredibly versatile four of the cast were autistic and two were not autistic and that I felt was kind of important as well because I wanted I didn't want people to look at the play and going and and to be able to say oh look there's the autistic people doing their thing over there I wanted to say look it's okay for all of us to be in this room together and look how much better it is when we're all here together I love that. And one of the interesting things about your play is that it's not a traditional narrative in the sense that it it doesn't have a plot. Why did you make that decision when writing What I Don't Know About Autism? So it was a decision that kind of made itself. I, I set out to write something with a plot about a dystopian future where people were selecting genes for their children and uh, autism had been eradicated and uh, and then this one autistic person was born uh, and the, in the plot of this play that I haven't written innovation has also come to a standstill but along the way I got completely sidetracked by the research I was doing and I was also the, the lack of understanding the lack of correct information and the kind of way that the narrative of autism was being portrayed in the media was really, really getting to me at the time. And so I thought, you know, maybe actually there's a piece of positive work to be done first before I look at, okay, writing this dystopian piece that there's, there's actually just something that's much more, this is how I feel about where I'm at with autism at the moment. I would like to share this with you in the hopes that it might start to change the the, the perceptions, the narrative, the social ideas about autism. And I suppose the other reason is because I've never been very good at writing plays with like clear through lines. My mind works in myriad ways, in myriad directions at all times. And in a sense, with the structure of this play, which is 26 separate scenes, and some of them do have a little bit of plot. So we can't follow the character Sandra and Colm through three scenes and there's another character that there's another thread of story so there's lots of different threads but in a way what I wanted to to do with these 26 scenes that explore different aspects of autism was to make a non-autistic audience have a feeling of maybe what it's like to be in the world and be 
a little bit overloaded and to be taking in so much information from so many different sources at different times. So in a sense, I wanted the structure to reflect what my perception of the autistic experience is. Now, disclosing about our autism is, you know, certainly a really important topic. And in this play, one of the characters tried to explain her autistic identity to a guy she had met and was interested in romantically. So what are maybe some things that you think about when disclosing your autism in this specific type of context? Okay, that's interesting. And actually, so in the play we have two scenes that are called question time where the audience can ask questions about what they've seen so far in the play and the actors answer them um, in a two-minute time frame. And then we have a, a post-show uh, conversation where we can talk a little bit more at length but for these question times we have a, a very large egg timer and we time the scenes just to make sure that we don't spend like the next hour uh, chatting somebody did ask that same question so there was an autistic audience member who was quite young and was in a relationship one of her first relationships and and she did ask you know what do you think about disclosing and for me, it's been an interesting experience because I disclosed my autistic identity quite publicly through the making of what I don't know about autism. It was kind of, it became part of the, the sort of media interest stories around the, the making of the play. But I also then realized that I hadn't really disclosed to people who were quite close to me. I was already in a relationship and had been in a relationship for a long time when I made this piece. So I haven't been in a situation where I've had to do that I suppose it really depends on the person doesn't it because you know some of us are very some of us lead with our autistic identities and some of us do not I think if you're in a situation where you're with somebody that you're not entirely sure that you trust them then it may make you vulnerable to disclose it but also not disclosing can make you vulnerable down the road. So in a sense, I would go, you know, in a, like maybe it's not something that you want to share with somebody on the first date, but as, as a relationship matures, I think it's very important that everybody knows who's in the relationship. And if somebody is autistic, then that's a really big part of who's in the relationship. And, and I think that a loving and a caring person isn't going to make judgments based on that and if they do then they're probably not the person that you necessarily want to spend the rest of your life with so I don't know that's that's what I think but I guess it depends on the situation. Now you were mentioning the aspect of the play that had a question time which um, makes me think about all of the I'll say I've had a lot of interesting questions over the years about autism so and I try not to be offended by any question that someone asks. Hopefully they're coming from a place where they're trying to, to learn. So I'm wondering, were, were there some interesting questions that you heard during the question time in, in the play? Yes, there were interesting questions and very interesting conversations that emerged. And, and like you, people say a lot of things to me in relation to autism and I did you know I was doing a performance of not this play but another one actor play a couple of weeks ago and 
the play, the idea with that particular play is that it's kind of a, it's a 25 minute piece, but then there's a 25 minute conversation about inclusion, equity and diversity as part of it. But in the after part of that conversation, people sometimes see it as an invitation to share whatever is kind of at the tip of their mind in relation to autism with you. And so you might find yourself faced with some quite ableist, some quite discriminatory remarks. And for me, like you, I try try not I, I try to go, okay, well look, I've encountered this person for not even an hour so far. And they have had however many years of the pervasive narrative as of autism as a pathology and autism as a negative thing, something that you don't want your child to have. So I can't change them in an hour, but what I can hope is that being here together in this space and making them feel safe in that space is going to leave them the space to go and percolate and maybe come to a different conclusion or maybe make a different decision than next. So I do try very hard to set people straight, but in a kind way. What we had to do with the, we had two runs of the show. What we had to do when we first trialed it, we didn't have our giant egg timer and we were doing a work in progress showing in Bray and we also didn't frame the question times. We said, does anybody have any questions at the moment? That's what we asked. And so we suddenly found ourselves with 45 minutes of people in the audience who were desperate to talk, who were desperate for services. And this was the first time that somebody had said, do you need to say anything? And so we ended up with this incredibly emotional sharing. The sharing went on for 45 minutes before we had to say, we have to do the rest of the play if that's okay. And so what we did after that was we went, okay, we still want to do it because obviously people need to talk. But what we need to do is we need to change our wording. So, and we need to buy a giant egg timer. So we bought our giant egg timer and we said, it's going to be two minutes for the question time. And we will say, does anybody have any questions about what you have seen so far in the play? And then the second time, I think it was, you know, does anybody have any questions about the play at the moment? And that really, really helped to shape um, how people asked the questions because they did then relate them to the scenes that they had seen and to what they had seen. And then at the end, for the first run, run we used to invite a different kind of expert, I suppose, like somebody from, a, a, from an organization or from a training group or from a family support group. We used to invite somebody else in to facilitate the post-show conversation with us. And then the second run, we had a facilitator from the theatre who would be with us, who would kind of manage the, the questions that would happen in the longer conversational part at the end. We had an amazing moment where somebody, there's also a scene confusingly, I didn't realise it was confusing, but it actually is. There's another scene called Questions Without Answers. And it's a conversation between a mother and a son who have had a huge disconnect in their relationship because of the fact that uh, he is autistic and she doesn't understand him. But we would we announce the scenes at the start of each scene. We would say, scene 23, questions without answers. And a man stood up and in the audience and he spent, I would say, five minutes just telling us his story, telling us the story of being 60 and finally finding out that he was autistic and realizing who he was and how that had been for him. And it was, it was such a, like, theatre is amazing because when you're in a space living and breathing with people like that you can have those moments and we were able to have it safely and we were able to 
then just go on stage and say thank you very much for sharing that we're just going to carry on with the with the play now we had all kinds of questions you know people are like I say people certainly here are, are desperate for support they're desperate for services they're desperate for somebody to, to listen to them so we had some you know some questions I suppose about education and about parenting choices and about teaching choices and and then some that were much more personal and then and yeah but by and large it was it's an amazing experience just to be with people like that I had never done anything like that before but now I want to talk to all my audiences <laughs> and see what's going on with them you know because you don't know who's sitting there and you don't know what will change in their life because of what they see now I would imagine theater, like most of our world, isn't the most inclusive place. And with the production of what I don't know about autism, there were aspects of this that you made some choices to make the play uh, more more inclusive. What were some of the choices that you might be easy for others, other plays to incorporate into their productions to make their these productions more inclusive? Yes, so there are two aspects to this. One is, I suppose, the rehearsal process. So in a sense, that's everything that takes place that the audience doesn't see. And in relation to that, in order to accommodate our cast, we generally worked shorter days. Uh, We took breaks. We provided visual schedules and information on the rehearsal venue in advance. When we got to the technical rehearsal, which is where you know, they start putting up the lights and uh, organizing the sound and stuff. That can be a very, very stressful environment. So we most, for the most part, we uh, teched the show without the actors. We had stand-ins for the actors who would stand in place. And so everything could be rigged around them. But we also, we talked with everybody. We provided training for everybody about simple uh, things that they could do. For example, you know, allowing for extra processing time. If, the, if you're going to go to a blackout in the theater, uh, most of the time the lighting technician will say going black and then you're plunged into darkness before the word black is even finished but we you know so we said some very simple things like if you could say you know going black and or going dark or uh, and then wait one two three four five and then go dark with the lights and stuff like that really helped or you know loud noise coming up and that really helped in terms of the audience experience when somebody was booking a ticket for what I don't know about autism, there was a visual guide that they could access. So they could download a guide which showed photos of the theatre, photos of the actors, gave a description of how the play would work. And, you know, they don't have to be complex documents, but they really can make all the difference, I think. For me, a huge thing is not being able to... The reason I don't go to stuff a lot of the time is because I can't see it and I can't anticipate what it's going to be like when I get there and um, so as much as you can I suppose answering those questions for people in a brief can be very low budget or high budget whatever you whatever way you want to do it and but answering the kind of questions that might be a barrier for some people in entering a space and then we tried to avoid having you know, loud noises. So, you know, a lot of the time there's a big bell that rings in the foyer. It's like, everybody take your seats. So we tried to avoid anything like that. And so we had, I think, extra ushers on who would go to people and say, we're going to let people in now, but it was quieter and a less aggressive process, allowing people to enter the space a little earlier 
sometimes very useful. It's not a kind of a crush to try and get everybody else in. For us, what we did was we left the house lights up a little bit and we took away those rules about, you know, if you leave the theatre during the performance, you may not be readmitted. We took away all of that. So we said, if you need to leave during the performance, it's okay. And if you'd like to come back in, you can come back in. And because the actors knew that, and because a lot of the time what's most disruptive about that is all of the other people policing the space and going, shh, shh, you can't go out, you can't do this. And so so because we took that away with a kind of an explainer for everybody to say, look, we're okay, the actors are okay, we want people to move around, we want people to be able to stim if they need to stim, um, if they're stimming vocally, that's fine. And we were very prepped for the fact that that, might and and did happen and or that like we had people danced in the audience and that was amazing and but I think it's not that difficult to make an accessible performance for for people we captioned the show as well I thought because we knew that for some people that would help a lot with processing the the text and there's a lot of text in it we had more kind of sign language interpretive performances than I think the Abbey had ever had on a run of a show and and the other thing that we did which again is was easy to do is just flag if there's something loud or something bright or some triggering coming up then we would just say there is going to be a loud noise now and then we would allow a moment and then the loud noise would would happen so it was something that we kind of worked out and we worked it into the structure of the piece. But I think there's a way of doing it if you, because some people would say, oh, well, that compromises the theatricality and it takes away from the magic. I think for most people, it kind of added to it because they were aware of the mechanics of it, but also still going, oh, but I'm still caught up in this really theatrical event. So I think there's lots of things that you can do. I think the best thing that people, that venues can do is talk to your staff who may be neurodiverse and if you don't have staff who are neurodiverse well a why don't you and b you can invite advocates into the space and you can order the space and you can so for me hand dryers are like no I don't want hand dryers on so so maybe we need to look at alternatives to hand dryers they're a huge trigger for many people but people may need to go to the bathroom at the theater so all those simple things just to take account of them and go, okay, well, what are we can be, maybe we can't meet this one, but maybe we can meet this, this, and this, and maybe that would be the difference between these ten people not coming and and choosing to come. Since you wrote a play titled "What I Don't Know About Autism," I thought it would be interesting to learn from you. Like, what do you not? What would you like to learn about autism that you don't already know? Oh, that is a great question. So. I would, I would like to, like, I obviously I'm like, autism is kind of my special interest at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) I know quite a bit about autism now, but what I would like to, I would like to know a lot more about brains in general, like on a kind on quite a high level. And I would like to look at the kind of intersection of different experiences on the spectrum of living and how we don't really how we understand really so very little about why there are overlaps or why you know certain things co-occur or 
so I would like to know much more about that and I would also like to know a lot more about you know how autism intersects with gender diversity or sexual diversity and I think that there's a huge piece of work that I'm not you know in a position to do myself but in general I think we need to look at why it's more difficult for people who are not white middle class and probably male to access a diagnosis. I would also like to know how the education system can be changed so that more people can access an education and more people can go on to fulfill their potential because potential is so vast and potential is so crushed by the education system as I see it at the moment. And I think that's so cool that like for you my interest of autism is certainly a special interest for me uh, but I feel like there's so much for myself also to continue to learn about the autistic experience of so many others. Yeah absolutely because you give you can only live inside the, the shell of yourself you know, and for me, I, I see a lot of myself reflected back in my son, but I also see huge differences. And, and I wonder what they, where they are, they, you know, what kind of, what are the determinants around kind of personality and drive and confidence? And, and how much does that have to do with just the context in which I grew up in being different to the context he's growing up in? For our autistic and disabled listeners, if they were looking to get into theater, because I, I know many other autistic folks that are interested in theater, whether it was either in front or behind the curtains, uh, what would be your advice to them? My advice is get a different job where you earn a lot more money. Um, but, um, but I think that theater can be an incredible place. And I think that theater, even without knowing it, has been a home for many neurodiverse people through the centuries. I think that we may not have had labels, but we may still have gravitated towards each other in the space, in the creative space of the arts. And I suppose for people who are listeners who are uh, younger, I think an incredible place to start is a youth theatre. You know, youth theatre as opposed to, I suppose, you know, a sort of more traditional elocution or speech and drama route. Because I think in... In something like a youth theatre context, you can learn so much about production, about making, about creation of work, about writing your own work, about embodying a, a character. And for for people who you know are adults and would like to access a career, it can be really tricky. But we need theatre needs more people, film needs more people. We need much more diverse spectrum of voices. So I would say don't give up, but you may need, like, there is a, still a huge bias in the industry, and I hope that that will change in the coming years, but I think that we need people to change it from within. So we do, even though it's challenging, there is a lot of, like, you could wait a really, really long time knocking outside the door of the industry for somebody to let you in, but sometimes you kind of have to lead and you have to make your own work and you have to find the people that you enjoy working with and say, okay, well, let's, let's do something together. And, and that can be a step and you don't know who's going to see it and you don't know where it will, it will lead to. I think be tenacious and be courageous and hopefully then that will gradually implement change across the, the industry. And then Jody, what, what's kind of next for you? I'm, I'm 
are you looking to develop um, and create additional inclusive theater projects aiming to promote autism and disability acceptance and understanding? Yes, I definitely am. So at the moment, we can't tour what I don't know about autism any further at the moment, but we do hope to. We streamed it and we have, from the streaming, a really high quality digital version of the show that we're hoping to be able to make available either later in this year or in early 2023. At the moment, I'm the first autistic theatre artist in residence in Cork Opera House and the University College of Cork. And that's an amazing opportunity because the Opera House are really interested in becoming a more inclusive venue. And so I'm able to support them on that. And also within UCC, there's a fantastic project called ID Plus. And I'm working with uh, students there with intellectual disabilities to, they're kind of looking a lot about advocacy, about learning how to tell your story, about learning how to tell your story in a way that doesn't leave you feeling very vulnerable and also learning to value your work and the, and the weight of your voice. So, and, and there's lots of other different projects in UCC that I'll be working on during the year, but it's, it's a really exciting opportunity because not only is it a chance to kind of fund my own work and some projects that I've been working on for a while but haven't had a chance to finish scripts for, but it's actually a real springboard into other things and new relationships and new groups of people and new dynamics. I'm also working with a, an educational theatre company to write a, a show for children that the central character is a non-speaking autistic girl. And it's the play is a little bit about grief, but it's also about her trying to find a way to communicate with her mother after her father has died. So, so that's kind of very early stages, but we'll be looking, probably we'll go into production in about 2024. And then we're, we're working on this, this other play, Yellow, this shorter play that, that's a one-person play. I'm handing that over to Eleanor Walsh, who worked on What I Don't Know About Autism. We've been able to continue working together, and we're hoping that she'll be able to tour that nationally in Ireland next year and maybe look at sparking conversations about inclusion in communities and educational settings as well. I love hearing uh, about that play about a non-speaking autistic girl, because you know, one of the things that I've been able to do with this podcast is is talked with several non-speaking autistics, and I think that's really important for their stories and experiences, and to get their advice as um, in addition to all other autistic folks. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time, Jody. Today, love learning more about um, your play. I love theater, TV, film, all of that stuff. So, always interested to talk about that. And you know, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much to Jody for the conversation. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Till next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.